Hello and welcome to The Human Ingredient. Now before we do anything else, I want you to imagine a salad. Make it a nice salad. It's got leaves in it, it's got fennel, it's got chives, it's got spinach, it's got rocket. Uh, maybe a bit of a vinaigrette dressing. Maybe it's got some um, edible flowers on top to make it properly Instagrammable. And you're sitting there enjoying your salad in splendid isolation. Just you and the green stuff. Okay, now I want you to picture a burger, but make it a filthy burger. I want it to have ketchup, I want it to have mayo, I want it to have melted cheese, I want shallots, I want gherkins, I want a brioche bun all wrapped around a 30% fat chuck steak, masterclass in beefiness. And you're in a restaurant enjoying that burger with your best friends in all the world. Okay, here's the question. Which one is better for you, the salad or the burger? What if I told you it was the burger, but it has absolutely nothing to do with what's on the plate? Now, that sounds like a pretty sketchy health claim, but there's actually far more truth to it than you might have imagined. In fact, there's good reason to believe that social eating might be the next revolution in healthy eating. Okay, it's a pretty radical thought, but I want you to hold it for a minute while we go off and talk about some other stuff. First of all, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Richard Cable, and this is a podcast about eating together. So over the coming episodes, I'm going to be meeting experts and everyday people alike, uh, and we're going to be sharing heartwarming, funny, offbeat, intriguing stories about why we eat together, why it's so good for us, why we don't do it enough, and how we can do it more. And as an added bonus, at the end of every episode, I'm going to do a recipe. Yes, a recipe in a podcast. The trick with this recipe is it's something that is designed to be shared with other people. So the proof of the pudding, very literally in this case, is in the eating. So this is an idea that I've been kicking around for a while. Um, I don't have any claim to expertise, so I'm not a chef, I'm not a critic, I'm certainly not an influencer. Uh, my food qualifications are pretty much um, enthusiasm, appetite, and the fact that I once made a Death Star out of gingerbread, which incidentally collapsed under its own weight into a huge heap, and the dogs ate most of it. It's really just an observation. I just happen to feel that when I've sat down to a good meal with friends and the, and the people I love, I feel so much better than if I sit down and have a meal on my own. If you really think about it, it's quite an odd thing to do, this whole sitting down, eating with other people business. Because whether you're sitting with somebody or sitting on your own, you're still taking in the same amount of nutrients. So clearly something else is going on that drives us to want to seek out the company of other people. This thought first occurred to me when I was reading this book, um, which is called The Selfish Gene. Uh, it's by Richard Dawkins. It's very good, highly recommended. With apologies to the author, I'm going to try and explain the sort of the core idea of this, because I think it's quite important. Essentially, the book describes how organisms like you and me are just disposable vehicles for the information coded in our genes. Okay? In other words, our genes are immortal, and we're just here giving them safe passage into our offspring, and they give it safe passage into their offspring, and so on, for eternity. So our genes are very self-interested. They literally won't do a damn thing that isn't ruthlessly focused on their own survival. So I'm sitting here reading this over a bacon sandwich, and I wonder why I would then bother to make bacon sandwiches for my friends who are genetically speaking, complete strangers. How is all this bacon-sharing altruism ensuring the survival of my genes rather than theirs? So something else is clearly in play. Now, I'm not going to claim for a minute that that was the launch of my life's work. Um, it was literally just something that kind of stuck in my head and, and hasn't gone away since. Hence, we're here. Anyway, so the next lesson um, for me in the power of social eating um, happened when I was in Japan. 
Um, so I was over there playing uh, rugby for a club called Rocco. Go Rocco. But what this time in Japan taught me was that this strange habit we have of sharing food with total strangers, sharing our precious resources with genetically remote people, is no respecter of, of language or culture either. Um, and by the time I left uh, a couple of years later, um, I'd really bonded with this collection of lunatics. Uh, I really felt a profound sense of belonging to this team, this club. And it really, I really felt, honestly, that it owed much more to the food that we ate after the games together than necessarily any of the performances that we turned in on the pitch. And of course, Japan, you know, brings a lot to food culture and you got to love the sushi, the sashimi, the skiyaki, the nikujaga, the tonkatsu, soba, udon, ramen, gyoza, yakitori, yakiniku. And oh, yeah. And a, just occasionally um, a, a Moss Burger, which is this brilliant kind of knockoff of McDonald's. So basically, this, this group of people embracing me with a, with a warmth and generosity that was totally out of all proportion to anything I could bring to the group. As I mentioned, I didn't really speak the language. I was just this big, mute English guy who sat in the corner grinning like an idiot. But the weird thing was, despite not knowing what was going on 90% of the time, I had some of the best nights of my life with that group of people in Japan. My third revelation came when I appreciated the what I'm going to call the magical healing power of eating together. Now, I came down a few years back with an illness that uh, everybody thought was swine flu. When I say everybody thought was swine flu, was uh, the doctors thought was swine flu. And so I was rushed off to hospital and stuck in uh, an isolation ward with a biohazard uh, symbol on the door. Anyway, it turns out it was meningitis. Now, meningitis is quite a punchy disease. Um, and the bout that I had was quite life-threatening. Uh, but I pulled through. Obviously, I'm here today. Um, now, the thing about this was that I found it quite difficult to get back on the horse afterwards. Um, and one of the problems I had was with other people. Uh, I went from really quite liking other people to this sort of moment where I found them intimidating and exhausting, and I just didn't want to be around anybody else. Um, so when we were invited out, my wife would go, I wouldn't. Um, anyway, finally, uh, it came to a head where she said, like, she refused to take no for an answer. There was a hog roast. There were going to be hundreds of people there. It was my idea of hell, with or without crackling. And um, yeah, but anyway, so she, as I say, she wasn't taking no for an answer and I got frog marched to the, the, to the hog roast and um, I'm like a, four hours later, I'm like a pork fed Lazarus. So I've, <laughs> I'm like a pork stuffed Lazarus. <laughs> I've just, I've risen from the dead and I'm back in the fellowship of uh, my fellow human beings. And, and it was the kind of this moment more than anything that convinced me or opened my eyes to the incredible potential benefits of eating together. And it kind of made me wonder why, in health terms, eating, social eating, eating together, isn't more of a thing. I mean, here we are obsessing about superfoods and various diets and fitness regimes and blah, blah, blah. And actually, at the end of the day, purely and simply, one of the best things you could do might simply be just to sit down and eat with other people. So I think this is something that as human beings, we instinctively feel is true, even if we don't think about it very much. So I asked um, a random group of people with a sort of a suspiciously even distribution of regional and national accents, which was better for you, eating together or eating alone? And this is what they said. I think eat with other people. Could you get, I think, well, I personally get my energy from other people. You would assume eating together. It depends if your partner is healthy or not, I guess. Eating together, definitely. Just makes food taste better. <laughs> I guess eating together. 
because I think when you're eating together, you're actually like concentrating on like in actually enjoying the food. When I'm eating alone, I'm just getting a downers. Oh, definitely eating, eating together is, uh, is much better. Because again, it, it does not just fulfill a basic need, fulfills something, something higher, which is you know, uh, the need of, of sharing time with someone, of communicating with someone. I'm not sure. Uh, I think eating together. I think eating alone. I think when you're alone, you're more prone. I don't know, I can only speak for myself, but I feel like I'm more prone to one, not really eating good and not eating enough. I would definitely say eating together, but I'm also incredibly like extroverted. Like I get, I get twitchy without other people around, so. For sure eating together, but I guess that is not a day-to-day -day reality. So I like, on, on a daily basis, I eat on my own. Let's go back to our question about the solo salad and the sociable burger. Which therefore is better for you? Nine times out of 10, conventional wisdom would have the salad is better for you than the burger, okay? I don't think anybody's arguing with that. We're not about to reclassify filthy burgers as health foods. At least it's not anytime soon and more's the pity. But I've been reading into this and it's been a subject of some interest for some time. And one of the things I've discovered is that there's some proper science behind the rich psychological benefits that we get from social eating. These range from, I'm just going to read them off now, from stronger social bonding to higher self-esteem, feelings of well-being, contentedness and belonging. Uh, if you eat socially, it means you're more likely to have the sort of big, robust support networks that gets you over life's rough patches. And, um, oh yeah, and stable family mealtimes growing up are connected to everything from uh, better performance in school to lower levels of truancy to lower levels of obesity in adulthood. So there is some proper firm science behind the idea that eating together is actually very, very good for you. By that rationale, a filthy burger that you're enjoying with friends is better for you, at least in terms of your emotional uh, and mental well-being, than a solo salad, which is quite an interesting thought. I mean, it's not just that like eating together is good for you. Eating alone may actually be actively bad for you. So again, I'm just going to quote this directly. A 2017 study published in the Journal of Obesity Research and Clinical Practice, you can borrow my copy, found a strong correlation between eating alone and an elevated risk of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and prediabetes. So that's kind of a triple whammy known as metabolic syndrome. While it's not an actual, like, there's no causal link, it's just a correlation but it does really point to, to the importance of things like cohabitation, uh, friendship, uh, social interaction, uh, and all of those things drive down your tendency to eat more crappy food than, than is strictly good for you. And then that kind of led me down a little rabbit hole where I went and looked at prisoners who are held in, uh, in, in complete isolation, where they have no, no, no company at all during meals. You know, they, the only people they see from one end of the day to another is, is the guard. And these prisoners kept in solitary confinement, they very often undergo um, extreme weight loss. So basically, the United Nations classifies any period of solitary confinement longer than 15 days as torture. And there's a good reason for that. The next thought then is, okay, eating together is really good for us. Uh, not eating together is really bad for us. So w why are we eating together less? So there is a trend in Western society, in, in Western cultures... And um, by Western cultures, I mean, that's kind of the, the spearhead of that is in the US and the UK, but it's happening all across Western Europe, is the fact that we are eating together less than we ever have before. Here are some facts and figures around that. So the Big Lunch, which is a, an organization that organizes the Big Lunch, it, it's about social eating. 
Um, they found that nearly half of all meals in the UK are eaten alone. Over a third of our fellow Brits won't sit down to eat uh, a meal with another human being from one end of the week to the other. Um, and that's that's pretty shocking. I mean, I'm no fan of um, of conversation over breakfast. I think people who are uh, sociable at breakfast time should probably be beaten with a stick. Um, but again, you know, it's just like it, it does say that even breakfast aside, we should be perhaps eating together more than we are. But it's declining. Uh, and it's declining in quite a severe and noticeable way. Hang on. Ah, tea. Uh, this nosedive in eating together that's happened over the last 50 years is really driven by uh, modern lifestyles. So we, we don't live in the same social groups we used to live in. Uh, we are remote from the places where we grew up. We socialise remotely. Um, we work insanely long hours. Um, and even when we're not at work, we tend to find ourselves not switched off. And so there are all these pressures, but they're kind of they're, they're facilitated by things like individualized portions. So if you looked at fast food or uh, or shop food um, 50 years ago, the individualized portion is not something that really existed. You bought food for families or you bought food as raw goods and you cooked it into a meal. So this idea that we've now got sort of individually packaged sandwiches, individually packaged ready meals, that is all driving us towards, is facilitating uh, the process of of withdrawing. And it's kind of weird. What's, what's perhaps worse is that even when we're eating in the presence of other people, we're often eating alone. So if you think about like, uh, you'll, you'll grab breakfast before or after the kids, just because you want to get them sat down and fed and out the door as quickly as you possibly can. And feeding yourself at the same time as feeding them is just one step too far. Then you've got things like sitting at your desk. Everybody eats lunch at their desk. So you eat lunch at your desk. You're surrounded by people, but you're focused on your screen. You are functionally alone. And then when you do get home, you might have missed dinner with the rest of the family because you've had a long commute. Um, or everybody sits down in front of the TV where, once again, you are functionally alone. So we are in this situation where we are increasingly together, but alone. If you think the boiling a frog analogy, uh, you know, where you, you, you is actually not true. Uh, if you put a frog in a pan of water and you slowly heat the pan of water up, the frog will jump out. He's not stupid. But, um, but obviously the analogy is that the frog just sits there and lets himself be boiled because he doesn't notice the change in temperature. Um, now, we haven't really noticed what we're giving up because we never really consciously understood what we were giving up in the first place. So if you think about it, this has happened relatively slowly over a period of decades. We instinctively seek out opportunities to eat with other people uh, rather than consciously. So you don't sit there and go, hmm, I fancy working on my self-esteem. I better call some friends for dinner. Uh, you just think, well, um, what do I fancy doing tonight? Uh, yeah, I'll do that. It's nice. So if we go back to our random group of strangers with a suspiciously even distribution of regional and national accents and ask them why they like eating with other people, you get answers like this. You just want to get together. I suppose I like making food, hopefully food that people enjoy. It feels so nice having a glass of red wine and your belly full. It's the sense of just like, I care about you. It's a big part of our food culture in Italy. Because I love food and I love good company, and I do feel like I know good places to go. Honestly, because I feel like food is kind of universally good. You're proud of it, you know, like you can have like the best schnitzel, and that brings people together also. But then if you ask them to go a little bit deeper, like one level below that, 
and think about how it benefits their health and well-being, you get answers like this. Um. 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 Well, I think it's. I don't know. It's like something that you've been doing since you were a kid, isn't it? It's a kind of um. Well, um. I'll say. Um. Um. Yeah, I. I mean, I guess if, if you're gonna get all sciencey with it. I think it's more an ex experience, which is connected to a feeling. So yeah. I don't know. So this is a podcast with a cause. It very definitely has an aim. It's to look beyond food as a fuel, to look beyond it as nutrition, and to discover, maybe rediscover, the diverse benefits of the human ingredient. The human ingredient being us, sitting down together to eat together. Uh, I'm going to go and meet people, and I'm going to ask them why they eat together, and I'm going to ask them what their theories are about eating together. I'm going to ask them why they do it, what they think they get out of it, and we're going to go deep. So I'm hoping over the next few months to be talking to a range of really, really interesting people uh, with lots and lots of different perspectives. So I'm hoping to speak to I'm hoping to speak to refugees who've come here from their homelands, and the only thing they have that they can share with anybody else is the recipes that they've carried here in their heads. I want to talk to sporty types um, about their kind of their food-based ritual. What I want to do is talk to evolutionary psychologists who figure out how social eating started. Like, where does it come from? And what is the scientific answer to it? You know, where is the benefit? And I also want to look at this phenomenon that is common to every culture on Earth. And it doesn't matter how remote your culture is, common to your culture. So, so tribes who've been cut off from so-called civilization for hundreds and hundreds of years will do this. And it's feasting. We all feast. And I, I want to talk to people about why they feast. I want to join them on their feasts. I'm quite looking forward to that bit. And really investigate the full story. So that's it for this episode of The Human Ingredient. Uh, if you enjoyed it, don't forget to share it, talk about it, comment on it, uh, like. What else can you do? Um, put it on your LinkedIn. Put it on your Facebook. Email it to somebody. That's a, that's a good thing to do. Um, and, uh, and if you subscribe... So you click on the little subscribe link in your um, podcast app on your phone. We will deliver, at no extra charge, the next episode straight to your phone. So if you have any suggestions or stories of your own that you'd like to share, do feel free to get in touch. Uh, currently, we're doing that via a Twitter handle, which is at Human Ingredient. So that's, that's where we are on Twitter. You can find us there. Um, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Genuinely love to hear from you. I am fully prepared to, if you've got a great story, I am fully prepared to do a full episode on you. So yeah, get in touch. Okay, as promised, I am going to play you out with a recipe, uh, a cook-along. And the thing I've chosen for my first cook-along is that most definitive and iconic of shareable foods, the majestic chip. Uh, these aren't just any chips though. What I'm going to be cooking for you are the greatest chips you have ever tasted. To make the best tasting chips in the world, you need three things. You need potatoes, you need oil, and you need salt. Kit you need is a heavy bottom saucepan, a slotted spoon for lifting the chips in and out of the oil, and a digital thermometer. Brilliant thing about chips, gluten-free, vegetarian, vegan, unless you cook them in beef tallow, in which case they stop being all of the above. Perfect chip, ferociously crispy on the outside, light and fluffy on the inside. And the way you get that effect is get the outside of the chip to seal perfectly and create a steam bath on the inside of the chip that then steams that potato uh, that turns the inside of the chip into that lovely fluffy consistency. First thing, Take four fist-sized potatoes, decent size. There are hundreds of varieties of potatoes, 
and I think that probably the best two are either russets or Maris Pipers, the ones I've got here are Maris Pipers. Uh, the reason for that is because they are dense enough to stop the oil making its way too far into the chip, but they're also very starchy, and you want that starch because it caramelizes and turns into the crispy layer on the outside of the chip. So I'm just going to peel potatoes. This is fascinating podcasting right here. Sexy podcasting. Yeah, sugar. That's the potatoes peeled. Next thing, get a big knife. Now, I have a preference for a nice meat cleaver. And so what I'm gonna do is slice the chips into one centimeter. So they should be basically about one centimeter to half an inch around the middle. Makes a good sized chip. Nobody wants a chip shape like that, that's rubbish. They can be as long as you like. Um, because you're cutting them out of a potato, they will be of irregular shape. And then what you want to do, because once you've sliced your potatoes, don't chuck them into water. People parboil them first. And parboiling is a big mistake, because what you want to do is get as much moisture out of the surface of the chip as humanly possible. Only a savage boils a chip. Once you've sliced them all into chips, what you want to do is pat the surface of each chip dry with some kitchen paper. It's surprising how many chips four decent sized potatoes will make. We're in the closing straight. Large pan full of oil. Sunflower oil is fine. In fact, I've used sunflower oil that we previously fried chicken wings in, so they should be slightly chickeny, these chips, which I think we can all tolerate. Hot oil is a dangerous substance, uh, never leave it unattended and make sure that you don't overfill the pan with oil uh, to reduce the risk of it boiling over. Okay, so we're just going to let that oil heat up and put <coughs> the probe of the electric thermometer into the oil and watch the temperature creep up from a steady room temperature which is today 30 degrees because it's boiling. Okay, so we're approaching 130 degrees, which means you can start cooking. And I'm going to lower the chips in using a slotted spoon. The reason for this is because the water very close to the surface of the chip will be evaporated, will be expelled from the surface of the chip really, really quickly. And that's what causes the chips to spit. So, so as more of that water escapes from the surface of the chips, it will start to boil a bit more ferociously. What happens in this first phase, in the first fry, is that the starches in the surface of the potato, in the surface of the chip, will start to combine with the little bit of water that's left and form a gel. And that gel is like the precursor to getting the perfect crust on. So what you do is you put them in, you leave them to fry for 10 minutes, so you set the timer for 10 minutes. Um, when that's done, you'll remove the first batch, drain them on some kitchen paper, put the second batch in 10 minutes, drain them on the kitchen paper. Take the second batch 
the chips in the first fry take them out of the oil so you don't have to go to the second fry immediately now you can put those chips aside and just reheat them later in the day uh, what we're going to do is go straight to the second fry which is where you bang the temperature up to 190 and you'll be doing the same thing taking your two batches of chips one after the other into the oil but this time for only four or five minutes and essentially what's going to happen is that starch gel on the outside of those chips will set into a nice crispy gorgeous caramelized layer of chip um, and inside that cocoon um, the temperatures will be steaming that potato to absolute perfection the oil is not just very 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 hot now it's insanely hot uh, you carefully lower your chips into that oil and at the end of that four minutes we should have something close to chip perfection it's a very very special moment oh <laughs> do you think they're done? I think that badge is done, right? Oh, suddenly the kitchen is full of people. Wait, those aren't done yet. Uh, I like to add a little bit of Malden sea salt because it's from Essex, but it's also classy. Oh, they're good. Okay, putting the last batch in. So these chips have come up a touch darker than I think we anticipated originally, but no less good tasting for it. Fantastic. And don't worry too much about serving suggestions because, to be honest, they're not going to last that long. So, and enjoy. Perfect chips. Mm -hmm.